Katrina Alcorn was a 37-year-old mother of three thriving children in a thriving marriage, and she had a thriving career. And people would often ask her, how do you do it all? How do you do it all? People, people at her son's preschool, people at the Y where her daughter took swim lessons, people at the web consulting agency where she managed a team of designers, people like the editor at the publishing firm that offered her a contract to write the design book, even her own husband. How do you do it all? One springtime Saturday afternoon while driving to Target to buy diapers, Katrina broke down. Not Katrina's car. Katrina. Here's what she said. I pulled over to the side of the road, my hands shaking, barely able to, to, to breathe. I called my husband. I sobbed. I can't do this anymore. She later remarked, Thus ended my career, and thus began a journey into crippling depression, anxiety, insomnia, and therapy. As I healed, I kept asking, what happened? What happened? She said, now I should define what nervous breakdown meant in my case. She said, I didn't feel suicidal or psychotic. I didn't get strung out on heroin. I didn't walk around downtown Berkeley yelling at garbage cans. I didn't act outwardly crazy in any way. She said, in my case, I simply stopped the way a watch stops when the battery dies. She said, I couldn't get my body to obey what my mind kept saying it should do. She said, on Monday, I was giving a presentation to a potential new client. On Tuesday, I was at home on my couch, weeping, incapacitated. She said, I never went back to work. I never even cleaned out my files. She said, I didn't plan on stopping working at the job where I'd been for the last six years. But when I thought about going to work, I felt like I would vomit. Katrina tells her story in a book that she wrote called Maxed Out, American Moms on the Brink. And her story touches on issues prevalent in our culture. Uh, issues like pace, busyness, and overload. Wouldn't you agree with me if I said that speed is in the American language? Uh, I mean, we're not busy, we're crazy busy. And we have words like rush hour, time crunch, speed dial, expressway, prime two-day. We drink instant coffee and we eat subs so fast you'll freak. <laughs> right? According to one author, we send packages by Federal Express, use cell phones by Sprint, manage our finances with Quicken, and diet with SlimFast. I mean, speed is in our language. And yet, as one historian observed, no one knows where we're going. The aim of life has been forgotten. The end has been left behind. Man has set out at a tremendous speed to go nowhere. We walk fast, talk fast, and then say, sorry, got to run. 
but God isn't running after us. He knows that speed does not generate devotion. In fact, the more hurried and harried we are, the greater the distance is between where we're running to and where God is waiting. Someone put it this way. The faster we pace our lives, the less we feel God's presence. Sit in that for a minute. The faster we pace our lives, the less we feel God's presence. And you know, a hurried heart can even miss the presence of Jesus even when he's in the same room. Which takes us to our text today. Luke 10, verse 38 says, Now as they went on their way, where are they going? What way is that? Well, you actually have to go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where it says, When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, that is the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is determined to go to the cross. He's resolved to go to Jerusalem where he'll be crucified for us, for our sin. And so as he's on his way there, it says that Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now Luke doesn't tell us how many were actually with Jesus. Could have been the 12. Uh, it could have been the 72. If you go back up to verse 17, 72 had been out on a preaching ministry tour and they returned. We're not sure, 12 or 72, but there they are entering this village where Mary and Martha, and we learn from the Gospel of John, they have a brother named Lazarus. And we also learn that it's the village of Bethany, which is outside of Jerusalem. So here you have this ministry party converging on Bethany. You've got Mary and Martha. And you know, theirs was a culture of hospitality, where the home was opened and guests would be treated well. Martha's managing all of this, Verse 38 says, she welcomed Jesus into her house. And so she's offering hospitality uh, that he would stay there as a guest. Very generous. Verse 39 says that Martha's sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Sat at the Lord's feet. Circle that. Uh, elsewhere in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, we learn that the Apostle Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. So we're not just talking about sentimental sitting, taking in a devotional thought from the Lord. To sit at the feet of is a metaphor. It's a word picture, which means to study under. To become a student of, a disciple of, and not simply for the purposes of learning and self-education, but for the purposes of becoming a teacher. 
So Martha's home has become a seminary classroom. To sit at the feet of a rabbi was what you did if you wanted to become a rabbi yourself. And so there's no thought here of just simply learning for learning's sake. Mary has quietly taken her place as a would-be teacher and preacher of the kingdom of God. At the same time, we must know that Mary is clearly where her culture in her day insists she shouldn't be. In a room full of men, male space, taking her place as a prospective gospel preacher. Who does she think she is? What are the neighbors going to think? What's the family going to think? This is outrageous. This is inappropriate. Ah, but Jesus is disrupting synthetic cultural mores. And one scholar says, Mary stands for all those women who, when they hear Jesus speaking about the kingdom, know that God is calling them to listen carefully so that they can speak of it too. Mary sitting at the Lord's feet. She's learning so that she can one day teach. Meanwhile, Martha is multitasking. She's got bread in the oven. She's checking roast chickens, lamb kebabs, green bean casserole, scalloped potatoes. She's got a living room full of hungry appetites to feed. And she turns and she, where's Mary? What, what? What's, what, what's Mary doing? What's going on here? Can you feel her exasperation? Verse 40 says that Martha was perispao. She's perispao. Say that with me. One, two, three. Perispao. Perispao. Distracted. Distracted with much serving. Perispao. Uh, uh, it really means to be pulled in every direction, to be dragged around north, south, east, and west. Martha, Martha was perispao. <laughs> she was the one who thought Mary was distracted. No, but Martha was. Isn't that the way it is, right? right? The one who's distracted thinks someone else is distracted. Kind of hard to see that in the mirror. So it's interesting here, isn't it? Instead of saying, uh, Mary, sis, actions in the kitchen, little help, I need you. Not what she says, is it? What does she say? What's the text say? She turns to Jesus. Lord, Lord, Lord. Kyrios, Lord, Master, Master. Luke's common designation of Jesus in his gospel Lord now if I call you Lord if I call you master what have I just done I've defined the relationship I call you Lord and that means you give the commands and I take the commands but that's not what happens is it she calls Jesus Lord and then proceeds to give him a command you see it Lord, 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 do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Lord, are you walking with me? Say amen. And so now it's gone beyond Mary. 
She's accusing Christ of not caring. And isn't that what happens? Isn't that what happens when we live outside our limits, when we live in constant overload, when the pace of life goes unchecked? You kind of start demanding that others meet the unrealistic expectations and pace that you yourself can't even meet. And then, with wooden spoon in hand, you go after God. Now, let me just give us a heads up here. Whenever you tell Jesus to fix someone else's life so that your life will get better, Jesus will always start with you. And that's what happens here. Do you see that in verse 41? Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. It's the two most important words in this paragraph. Martha, Martha. It's a, it's a double salutation. Martha, Martha. Double salutations appear about 10 times throughout the Bible. For example, in Genesis 22:11, just as he was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, God called out, Abraham, Abraham. In Genesis 35, when Jacob was wondering whether to go down to Egypt or, or uh, not to see Joseph, God said, Jacob, Jacob. In Exodus 3, in the burning bush episode, God calls out, Moses, Moses. Double salutation, Martha, Martha. The purpose of a double salutation is to signal a critical turning point to the person being addressed. Double salutations get our attention. Double salutations signal this critical juncture here that whatever happens next is going to affect the trajectory of your entire life. Double salutations are intended to get our attention and flag a critical turning point. Martha, Martha, you are dragged along about many things, but one thing is necessary. Martha, Martha, when I come over to your place, I do not require Silver Creek. Jimmy John's will do. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. Good portion. Good portion. That's a, that's a reference to the portion of the meal. It's a play on words. You hear Jesus? Jesus is saying, Martha, Martha, you're feeling hurried and stressed and overloaded about the meal portions that you want to serve, but the meal has already been served, which I have brought. We're, Martha, we're eating out here. Won't you join us? So it's not so much a reprimand as it is an invitation. Join us, Jesus says. You see, Mary is reenacting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. The buffet is out in the room where Jesus is feeding his disciples. And Martha was so deep in the details of the meal that she wanted to make, she lost sight of the point of the meal, which was to enjoy the company of the guest whom you have invited into your home. Now, this is important for any guest, and especially when the guest is Jesus. Jesus. 
Now, my concern here is that, you know, you would walk away from this message and our service saying, okay, what did the pastor talk about today? All right, okay, Martha bad, Mary good, be like Mary, don't be like Martha. And, 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 and I, I don't, that's a little too simplistic and reductionistic because this really isn't a sin issue here. Because Martha was really trying to serve. She really was. She was trying to do the work of the Lord. But the way she insisted on doing the work of the Lord was becoming toxic to her soul and to others. So, so, so this is not a sin issue. It's a wisdom issue. What's the wise thing to do? And what's wise is living a life of love for God and others. Jesus wants my life to reveal my love for him and others. Jesus wants my life's pace to reveal my life's love for God and others. Je Jesus, Jesus wants me busy, but there's a difference between busy and hurried. Busy, busy is just the activity of an industrious person serving the Lord. Hurried is a state of heart. And Jesus wants me busy, not hurried, not rushed, not harried, not frantic, not frazzled, but busy doing life that shows love for God and others. Martha, Martha, you are troubled and anxious about many things, but only one thing is necessary. And the world wants us to value the volume of many things and call that productivity God wants us to value the importance of the one thing which he calls fruitfulness. The world wants us to value the impression that we make at our plate-spinning solo circus act. God wants us to value a life whose sole focus is before an audience of one. The world wants us to value the futility of getting nowhere faster, but God wants us to value the wisdom of choosing a long obedience in the same direction toward an eternal end. Mm. So here's our big idea. Only one thing is necessary. A focused life at the feet of Christ. There it is. That's my one portion. That's my one portion in life. A focused life at the feet of Christ. A focused life at the feet of Christ. So, so the, again, this is not the contemplative life against the active life. No, 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 no. No, this is about a focused life. And, and I want you to notice that what's happening prior to verses 38 to 42, affirm God-called activism. So you see Christ, at the beginning of chapter 10, sends out the 72 on an active preaching, teaching mission. And the 72 went out and they healed the sick and they expelled demons and they proclaimed the word and they were so effective that Christ said he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then what follows that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Good Samaritan, an historic enemy of Israel, gave compassion to a Hebrew and put love on display by dropping his schedule for the benefit of another. 
You see that? You see how Luke places the story of Mary and Martha after all of this important activism? Because Luke wants us to know that if we heal the sick and cast out demons and preach the gospel and show mercy and do justice, yet neglect the good portion at the feet of Jesus, we've missed the one thing that we truly need. The one thing more important than your ministry to Jesus is his ministry to you. So can you detect when Christ wants to minister to you? That's the question. Can you detect when Christ wants to minister to you? As I'm thinking about this passage, I'm just thinking, well, yeah, I mean, because I have it scheduled on my schedule. He doesn't always cooperate with our schedules. Why? Because he's the Lord. He's the Lord. So can you detect when Christ wants to minister to you? Because that's the portion that we really need. Now, wish I could give you six steps or seven tips or five ways. I've got nothing on that end for you. But I do have three questions. A good question, a better question, and the best question. A lot of people ask a very good question when it comes to the pace of life. And here's the, here's the good question. It's simply this. What needs to get done what needs to get done? What's, what's, what's my to-do list? We'll, you know, we'll figure it out. Plug it into the calendar and then start chipping away. Where do I need to be? What do I need to do at work? When do I need to pick the kids up at soccer field after practice? And, and after, after they've been accounted for uh, you know, the urgent, then, then they try to squeeze in the next most urgent things to do. And, and then with any luck, there's still room to fit in some sleep and a shower and maybe a meal or two with the family. And, and then at the end of a good day, if they made all their appointments and crossed everything off their to-do list, then they fall into bed and pray, God, help me pull this off again tomorrow. What needs to get done? That's a good question. Here's a better question. Here's a better question. What kind of person do I want to become? Hmm. What kind of person do I want to become? Uh, a more restful parent, a more physically responsible adult, a peaceful spouse, a calmer Christ follower, less of a stranger to God. What kind of a person do I want to become? What about our children? What kind of person do I want them to become? Parents, we need to ask more than what do I want them to do. We need to ask who do I want them to become, and surely we're not going to leave it alone to them to answer that question all by themselves, who would do that? And all too often we use our calendars to reactively schedule our activities from all the requests we get, and then we end up blaming the calendars for how hurried we are, as if we are victims, as if we have no choice in the matter. We say, it's not my fault, it's my boss's fault, it's my family's fault, it's my teammate's fault, it's my kid's coach's fault. And some of us assume that we are the victims of the very commitments and responsibilities we said yes to. Jesus is pushing us to use our calendars to forge character. He wants the pace of our life to be the fertile soil to which the fruit of the Spirit flourishes. 
But for that to happen, we've got to remember that the calendar is more than just an organizational tool for all my activities. My calendar is a compass pointing me to be the kind of person God wants me to become. Hmm. What needs to get done? Eh, That's a good question. A better question is, what kind of person do I want to become? But here's the best question. Here's the best question. Could you recognize the good portion if he walked into the room? Could you recognize the good portion if he walked into the room? Martha was doing some really good things, but she missed the one good portion that she needed, which Mary had, which was not going to be taken from her. And look at this text. Do you sense that Mary was the least bit concerned about what Martha thought about her? Why? Because she was with the good portion. And people who enjoy Jesus don't get flustered about what other people think. What kind of person do you want to become? What kind of person does Christ want me to become? Oh, those are, that's good. But can you detect the good portion when he comes into the room? And do you know what you would look like if you did? If you do? When that becomes part of your life, the good portion in and through your life? Oh, listen to these verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 41, 19 and 20. Isaiah 41, 19 and 20. God says, I will plant trees in the barren desert. Cedar, acacia, myrtle, olive, cypress, fir, and pine. So this is this multi-ethnic forest in the desert. God says, I am doing this so all who see this miracle will understand what it means, that it is the Lord who has done this, the Holy One of Israel who created it. Oh, no. No, Jesus was not scolding Martha. He was inviting her to join him. And and we're not, we won't say no to more craziness until we say yes to more Jesus. And we'll keep choosing cheap dinner rolls over the bread of life. We'll choose the fanfare of the world over the feet of Christ. We will choose busyness over blessing. Beloved, it's not immoral to be overwhelmed. It's just unnecessary. It's unnecessary to live a life with more craziness than we want because we have less Jesus than we need. And the one thing, here it is, the one thing more needed than your ministry to Jesus is His ministry to you.